This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail, or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank you for the comments and for the emails. Please keep them coming. Keep the comments coming at Facebook. I really appreciate it. I was at a Dunkin' Donuts. I'm ashamed to say that, that I was at a Dunkin' Donuts, but I was. I was at a Dunkin' Donuts the other day getting munchkins for my class that I teach at church. Got to supply the kids with munchkins these days or they don't listen. I, of course, went on a Saturday because Saturday is a special day. It's the day you get ready for Sunday. So I was out on Saturday buying munchkins for my class. I did not do this Sunday morning. Actually, I have a confession to make. I did do it Sunday morning. Okay, but anyways, I'm at Dunkin' Donuts getting munchkins for the class. And the clerk was Eastern European, an immigrant. I'm not sure if he was Russian or Ukrainian or from the Czech Republic, but he got angry about something and started swearing in English. And it just sounded strange to hear this guy who spoke pretty good English. I mean, he spoke decent English. But to hear him swear in English, because he just wasn't using it quite right. You know when you see people from Europe or Africa or South America or something and they're speaking English, it's their second language, and they're using profanity in English. It just doesn't quite have the visceral impact for some reason. I don't know why that is. They just don't seem to quite use it properly. Sounds weird. Sounds inauthentic. In fact, the best that some of these people can hope for is some sort of comedic effect. We see this in people like Jackie Chan. You know, he intentionally butchers English, says things that he knows are inappropriate given the situation, and there's a comedic effect. But you never kind of get this visceral sense when people are cursing in their second language instead of their mother language that they really are feeling it viscerally. And this from people who speak English quite well, even. I speak a second language, not nearly as well as this guy at the Dunkin' Donuts spoke English, by the way. I shudder to think at what I sound like when I express real emotion, anger, frustration in that in my second language, which is Chinese. I began to learn it on my mission. I studied a little bit in Taiwan after my mission. The last couple of years, I've been trying to review it anew, so I don't mean to pick on people who speak English as a second language. Speaking a second language is hard. I'm just trying to make the point. There's a difference between your first and your second language. There have been studies on this, this phenomenon, by the way. They say that people from two different cultures, when they get married, that the one whose mother language dominates the relationship is the one who's more emotionally charged all the time. And that the other person, even if they're quite fluent, if the language that they are speaking is their second language, they're not as emotionally charged. There's like this emotional buffer between the language that they're speaking and their feelings. And there's this extra processing time and it keeps them a little more emotionally detached, and they're not as easily hijacked by their emotions when a disagreement crops up. Whereas the native speaker is more emotional, more easily hijacked. Well, that's an interesting phenomenon, and it 
raises questions about what exactly is going on in our mind. What exactly is the operating system of our experience, be it mental, emotional, while we're on this earth? And how does language, and more broadly speaking, history and culture affect these things? There's a German guy who wrote a very interesting book in 1927. That seems like ancient history, doesn't it? 90 years ago, a guy named Martin Heidegger, he wrote a book called Being and Time. He is credited with forming the foundation of what is existential philosophy. And I know people get very touchy when we as LDS people start to bring in philosophy to help us understand our experiences, not only on earth, but within our religion. It starts to sound a lot like scripture mingled with the philosophies of men. There's some sort of perceived danger involved with looking outside of ourselves and beyond our community to understand ourselves, our community, and the existence within it. So we as a people have this fear, I think, of doing that, incorporating the ideas outside the bubble but I think those fears are unfounded. I think those fears are actually counterproductive. And in my more sardonic moments, I think those fears are just dumb. I think it's important that we read the Heideggers of the world the same way we read C.S. Lewis or Mark Twain or Ray Kurzweil. I think it gives us an additional perspective. And perspective, as I've stated before in this podcast, is sorely needed inside our community. So I want to talk a little bit about what Heidegger said, some of the basics, and why I think Heidegger in particular is important for Mormons. This is going to be a brief summary. There are people who are listening now, I know, who understand Heidegger better than I do. Some of you out there have read him extensively, maybe even have a master's degree or a Ph.D., related to existentialism, or even related to Heidegger specifically. So for those people, I'm sorry. You're going to get the Cliff Notes version. And whenever you simplify, you end up butchering something. I'll try not to do that. But basically, Heidegger, on a real fundamental level, was concerned about two things. Our being and getting to the point where you're so aware so in tune that you fully comprehend the extent of your beingness. And the second was authenticity, and more particularly how one's ability to live authentically stems primarily out of one's ability to understand, interpret, react, and then rise above the time or the history or the period in which one has been thrown into. So that's kind of weird. But basically basically what he's saying is when you're born, you're thrown into something, this soup of language and history and culture. And he calls this big, massive soup, Das Mann, you know, mass man. And what he means is this big, gigantic cultural blob of which you have no control which is foisted upon you. And that, and what he says is you're thrown into it. But then he says, even though you're thrown into it, that during your time, during your time as a being, as you become more aware, there is the possibility that you can begin to interpret and then slowly rise above or break away 
from this big blob, this big Dosman, mass man, the blob of culture and expectation that's controlling everything and everyone. And if you reach that stage, then you're truly authentic and you're operating driven by your own conscience, independent of everything else. Now, that's Heidegger generally. I know there's going to be people who take issue with that summary, but I think it's a, you know, a fair enough summary of Heidegger, general summary. But I bring Heidegger up because of something very specific that he said, which I think is particularly relevant to our community and relates to ideas that we've broached in previous episodes of this podcast. And it's this, Heidegger says, as you become independent, as you become one who's acting according to the dictates of your own conscience, you can't do that in a vacuum. You can only do that by interpreting, reinterpreting, reiterating all the things that are happening within the historical and cultural milieu that you're existing in. In other words, you do that by reacting to everyone else and everything else culturally, linguistically, historically, that's happening within the time that you're living. That history has reached a point of you, and then you own history. Maybe owning history is too strong of a term. But, but at that point, you're reacting, adding to, reiterating, responding to, contributing to history. And of course, this is the time element of being and time. There's a time, a period when you're alive, reacting, doing. But all of your growth, your quest for authenticity in Heidegger's word, words, for independence in Mormon Awakenings words, for personal authority in Mormon Awakenings terms, none of that can happen in a vacuum. It has to happen within this historical cultural milieu in which you're thrown. Now, just as an aside, I hate the word milieu. I, I think it's a condescending word, but it's really a good word. It's an effective word. And it basically means the environment or the sphere, the background, the setting, whatever, whatever your, the context, wherever you are, that's your milieu. And you don't have a choice about your milieu, at least the initial one in which you are thrown when you're born. And this milieu is a product of history and culture and everything that's accumulated in time before you were thrown into it. And at this point, according to Heidegger, during your lifetime, you have a choice about how you react to this historical milieu. Heidegger says there are basically three ways we can react. One is we can react in an antiquarian way. The second is we can react in a critical way way to this milieu or this history. And the third is we can act in a monumental way to this historical milieu. And these are basically three ways of perceiving or interpreting or reacting to this, this cultural historic blob into which you've been thrown. And what's interesting about Heidegger's point here, and I think it's this is a really critical point, is how you think, how you react to the historical blob in which you find yourself really determines the quality of your life, your thoughts, your reactions, mental reactions, 
to the situation you find yourself thrown into are critically important in determining the quality of your experience. Thought precedes the, the experience and the quality of the experience is dictated by thoughts and reactions that you have had in the past to something. That's, that's deeply profound in my mind. So after we're thrown into this cultural blob, if we think of it as an antiquarian, what we're saying is the past, the distant past, the near past, the time before I arrived was better. That was the golden time. And now, the present, the time that I'm living, is worse. And if only somehow I could convert, can, could convert the now into what it was like in the past, that would be better. You know, in one sense, make America great is an antiquarian notion. Likewise, our notions inside our community of the gospel of Adam this idea that everything was perfect and handed down and prepared from the beginning and since then it's been corrupted and we constantly need to restore and get back to the fundamentals. This is an, an antiquarian notion as well. It's basically saying what happened 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, that was really the, the good time. And in our case, in our community, we're saying that was when God was really talking to us, really gave us the the pure, unadulterated version of the gospel. Oh, if only we could go back to that time. Well, all that kind of thinking is antiquarian. And Heidegger says this is not a healthy way of thinking. This is an inauthentic way of interpreting, reiterating, responding to the historical milieu in which one finds oneself. The milieu in which you've been thrown upon birth now, Heidegger doesn't say it's categorically bad. It's not always bad to think that way because there are times of moral decline or degeneracy, you know, when, when antiquarian thinking is actually helpful. But in general, Heidegger says that antiquarianism is, is inauthentic. And by inauthentic, he means it's unenlightened. It's not rooted in reality. The second way that Heidegger says we react to the historical cultural blob in which we're thrown is to be critical of it, to effectively look at our historical context as the product of a dominant group oppressing the weaker groups, as the product of some sort of imbalance in power or status in which those with the power and the status oppress, dominate, and then rig a system to favor them, like a caste system, if you will. It's easy to see people inside and outside our, our community interpreting their experience through a critical lens only. Anyone who's listened to the podcast A Year of Polygamy can see that that is basically a critical assessment of that historical period of Mormon life, i.e. polygamy and all of the surviving artifacts that seem to still bubble around inside our community. You know, the prophet, the leaders in power abuse their status, their perceived power to prey on poor, unsuspecting women. So that's a critical view, again, 
I'm generalizing, but we know lots of people who view and react to the historical milieu in which they're living in this type of critical way. And again, like antiquarianism, there are times when a critical relationship with one's history is, is good, is constructive, for sure. Because throughout history, those with power and status do exploit those who are weaker or less in doubt or however you want to think about it. And so it's positive, constructive, and helpful to be critical at times. But overall, it is not the preferred way or the most enlightening way to react to one's history. According to Heidegger, according to Heidegger, the most authentic way to respond to one's history is through the monumental interpretation of it or the monumental appropriation of it, it being one's history, or this historical cultural blob in which one is thrown into. And under monumentalism, one takes the cultural milieu, the symbols, the historical artifacts, and transforms them, adds to them by addition, both transforming and adding. Now, the reason I raise any of this, Heidegger, being, milieu, interpretation and reaction to one's history and authentic living is because I see this paradigm playing out inside our community. There is clearly an antiquarian camp living inside our community. There's also a very critical camp living inside our community, and there is a monumental camp living inside our community. And I'm starting to develop some opinions about what might be the best way to move forward. And I think if you've been listening to this podcast, you can guess that I'm a monumentalist. In fact, I'm going to make the assertion that in spite of the existence of these three factions inside our community, that in fact, generation after generation after generation, it is the monumentalists who move Mormonism forward or any living community forward. It is the monumentalists who take past symbols, reinterpret them, repackage them, take past histories, rewrite them, retell them, re-stamp them, republish them. It is those people who keep a community alive and moving towards this ultimate goal of really understanding our being, our beingness, really being enlightened about the reality. And let's not forget, that's the whole point of any of this, is to understand our beings better, to understand reality better, to become independent, to act under the dictates of our own conscience. Instead of just trying to please all these other people who live in this big blob instead of being a servant to Dasman. And I think most people would nod their head and say, yes, well, of course, that makes a lot of sense. You, don't, you didn't need to talk for 20 minutes to explain this to us, Jack. We get it. But see, here's the problem. When you reappropriate cultural, historical icons, symbols, and start to reinterpret them, you start messing with the definition of truth. You start messing with the idea of what is true. Never mind all the collateral damage, like saying certain things didn't happen or did happen when they did or didn't. Never mind all the 
factual collateral damage that happens when you do this. And so whether you're doing it by revelation, which is how we like to think we do it inside our community, or innovation, which is what we say happens outside of the community, you're messing with fundamental ideas about truth. And we have seen our own community grappling with this problem. We have published a bunch of essays, for example, that seek to do a little monumentalist reinterpretation of some of our cultural and historical symbols. And we have a schizophrenic attitude about these essays. On the one hand, we laud them. We welcome them. On the other hand, we hide them. Because I think subconsciously we're afraid of this fundamental contradiction about what it means for something to be true or what truth is. So when we publish an essay that's that attempts to shed light, shed light on some sort of historical mistake, for example, the critical faction of our community says, well, this is just more crap. This is more garbage, more manipulation by Das Mann. And then the monumentalists who wrote it to begin with hide it because they know the antiquarians are going to say, well, what? Joseph Smith had, he did what with Fanny Alger? We need to get back to the gospel of Adam. Where's Denver Snuffer? Or Julie Rowe? And around and around it goes because as a people, I don't think we understand what it means to progress. For a group that claims eternal progression, we seem to have a woeful understanding of progress. And instead, we respond to the tension between a monumentalist reinterpretation, reappropriation of our symbols, which, by the way, keeps things alive. We respond to the tension between the monumentalists and the antiquarians or the monumentalists and those who are critical by saying, well, let's just follow the prophet. Let's just do what he tells us to do. And then everybody turns their head and looks towards the prophet and he tells us to not read Heidegger. And if he doesn't, then other people during general conference do. His proxies do. They tell us to read only the approved books and around and around in this little bubble, in this circle, this blob we go. I think this helps explain why things happen so glacially inside the church, so slowly. It has to happen slow enough so that no one really even notices it's happening. And it, the it I'm talking about here is change. But change it does and change it must if it's going to be alive. Change is monumentalism. Change is what enables us to start responding to the dictates of our own conscience instead of just pleasing Dasman. Now, people get frustrated with this, and with the, when the frustration reach, reaches a point that's too heavy, they say, this, this stinks, I'm leaving. And believe it or not, Heidegger has something to say about that too. Because Heidegger says, you can't leave. You can't leave the culture, the history, the linguistic milieu that you were thrown into once it's become part of your ego or your operating system or the way that you view the world. 
because when you start to see the world through any other operating system, it's inauthentic. Think back to our cursing Dunkin' Donuts employee. There's something inauthentic about that. And while you can learn, while you can borrow, you're not going to have an authentic interaction with anything except the milieu into which you were born. Now, I'm not so sure that this is true anymore because we live in the world of the internet, mass media, the worldwide interweb, and Heidegger's world did not have that, although it did have mass communications, radio, newspapers. It did not have basically a world that is slowly but surely becoming one big global culture. So I'm not sure that that's entirely true today as it was when Heidegger wrote it. But I do think there's something about the mother tongue, the mother cultural historical milieu that affects you forever once it becomes part of your operating system. And we always see, interpret, reinterpret, reflect, however you want to think about it, through that lens. And so in one sense, to you antiquarians out there, like it or not, The critical, even the ex-LDS, are here to stay. And they're going to contribute and affect the big blob we all live in. Whether it's sanctioned or not, whether or not those effects are time-delayed or not. All of this, of course, let us not forget, is part of becoming a more authentic being. And what are we going to be throughout the eternities? I suspect we're going to be more and more authentic, more and more what we in fact are, more knowledgeable about what is, instead of just doing what someone told us. And thereby we get back to the theme that we hear week after week here at Mormon Awakenings, that of personal authority. Ultimately, you decide. Ultimately, you interpret. Ultimately, you use the symbols, the icons, the history that's been given to you in your way. And thereby, you become what you are. And in this sense, I think Heidegger was right. I think the model that he formed and articulated is predictive. It may not be totally right, I don't know, but it certainly is helpful. It helps us understand our world and our experience. It's more helpful than a lot of things that I've experienced during my church life. Less helpful than some, but it contributes. Because Heidegger, let us not forget, was a child of God too. And maybe Heidegger is writing the stick of Heidegger. We've heard about the stick of Judah and the stick of Jesse. We've been told there'll be other sticks coming forward, sticks being books, histories from other peoples, other peoples who were inspired, had inspired interactions with deity that record their relationships with God, their thoughts, their experiences. Well, why are we afraid to include the writings of Heidegger or others like him? It's not as safe, of course. You start surveying the whole world. All that's been written, you get exposed to a lot of crazy ideas. 
many of which are destructive. It's not an activity for the uninitiated. It's not an activity for those in the first half of life. I'll even go so far as to say. But I think progress at the end of the day demands that we consider these things. Jesus talked about this. He talked about new wine being put into new bottles. If the antiquarians are right, then we don't need new wine. We just need the old wine. We certainly don't need new bottles. We just need the old wine put back into the old bottles. If the strictly critical are right, then the wine is produced by slave labor, people under the thumb of the man, and we're being manipulated, tricked into drinking it. But Jesus didn't say any of that. He talked about new wine in new bottles. He talks about progress. Progress means looking at things anew, reinterpreting, reappropriating. And that will never happen if all we do is read the same old books, consider the same old ideas, look around inside the same old echo chamber. We got to get out a little bit. We got to fertilize the field. We have to let go of our traditional notions of truth and start reconsidering our symbols, to make them more true. Well, that seems to make no sense at all. Yet, in a non-binary world, adds up to progress. And without progress, we die. Well, I've gone on too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do contact me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or look for me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.